Hi, everybody. This is Joe from Front Row Central. Uh, just giving you a quick preface for the episode you're about to hear. Uh, so we recorded this episode way back in November, right after the election. We were all feeling kind of salty about it and decided, hey, let's get on Skype and talk this thing out. Maybe talk about some other things related to presidents and Hacksaw Rich had just come out. So we decided to talk about that. And uh, so this is kind of the conversation that resulted. And for whatever reason, we sat on the episode for about three months and we decided to, hey, you know what? It's President's Day. Let's just release it now. So here it is. Here is our actual pilot episode of the Front Row Central podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we will be back with more current events uh, soon. Uh, enjoy. Shut up and sit down. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Front Row Central podcast. Now that 2016 is nearly over and we're all leaning into oblivion, we've decided now is the time to speak. We have four of our writers available to speak with you today, or for you to listen to, rather. Uh, my name is Ashley Harold. I'm Martin R. Schneider. I am Salah Abbott. Hi, I'm Joseph Wade. And today we are going to talk about uh, Hacksaw Ridge, 90s epics and fictional presidents. Um, Marty, you saw Hacksaw Ridge earlier today? Yeah, I did. I just got out of it. Um, and I had a lot of thoughts about it, not necessarily about the quality of the film, although I do have those. Um, what struck me about this movie is as I was watching it, I kind of started to feel oddly nostalgic, at least for the first half of it. It's very fitting that this is a movie from Mel Gibson, because it seems kind of like the exact same kind of movie that he would star in circa 1994. And I started Starry-eyed and saccharin? Yes, a little starry-eyed and saccharin. And remember, the early 90s are kind of like the the highlight of the Spielberg-instyled saccharinness. Um, this kind of idea of embracing the cheesiness big uh gushing epics with like weepy string music uh, in the background with our great white hero our idealist in the foreground uh, i'm talking about things like your brave hearts uh your forest gumps um it's titanic especially backdraft <laughs> no maybe you know back in so much as Backdraft glorifies, you know, the, the fire departments of America, yeah, sure. Yeah, I could do I could go for that. Yeah. It's um Backdraft is almost on a smaller scale than what I'm thinking of. But I yeah, I can see that. And I feel like this was this was a trend in the early nineties that doesn't really have a name yet because I don't think we've looked at it too much. Uh I'm calling it TNT Core because these are all the shows or the movies that wound up getting played over and over again on TNT. That kind of movie. And I know that these were just kind of trying to emulate uh, 1940s epic styles like Gone with the Wind. But it felt out of place watching that that in, in the theater in 2016. And I'm not 100% sure why. Uh, I think in the 90s, those were your options. And your other options were like angry, bitter, irony-laden films. Uh, this was all... 
this is at the same time as uh, independent directors like Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino, movies like Reality Bites, Clerks, uh, and really angry stuff like what Spike Lee was putting out. And I don't know. It. I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm saying it's interesting to have a film like this in theaters. Now, this is if you're not familiar with Hacksaw Ridge, I will go ahead and recap the plot. Uh, Andrew Garfield plays a Virginian named Desmond Dawes uh, at the beginning of World War II. And he is a pacifist. He makes a promise that he's never going to uh, cause pain or hurt another creature. But he wants to enlist and serve his country in World War II. And he wants to serve as a medic. And half the movie is him falling in love with Teresa Palmer, who, by the way, is a great actress and should really get more credit and should get better roles. But she's got they've got this like sweeping, epic, silly, cheesy love story at the beginning of the movie. They fall in love, they get married, he enlists, and the rest of the movie is him refusing to pick up a gun uh, with all of his troop, his platoon, angry about him for that. And when he finally, after fighting through a court-martial and having his drunk, angry corporal father, played by Hugo Weaving, kind of bail him out, call in a favor from one of his old army buddies. Um, he goes on to become this great hero at the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge, and he pulls out 75 wounded men without holding a weapon, without ever touching a gun, and saves his sergeant, who is played by Vince Vaughn, who is strangely the best part of the movie. Uh, that is bizarre. That is an extremely bizarre thing you just said. Yeah. <laughs> and Vince Vaughn has been the best part of a lot of stuff lately. I'll also say that about True Detective Season 2. That wasn't good, but Vince Vaughn was the best part of it. Um, and so I'm going the... to take I'm going to take your word on that for Vince Vaughn because I, I've I've been so sort of disinterested in him for such a long time that the only time I've seen him in anything in the last like five years has been in Hacksaw Ridge. And yes, I, I agree, he's great in it. Believe I, it or not, I want him to have a reconnaissance, a revonnaissance, if you will. <laughs> I can't remember him. Get out of here! Get out of here! I'm sorry. Am I am I too much of a revonnaissance for you? Is this revonnaissance history? Yes. I don't, know that, I don't know that I'm going to give Fred Claus the benefit of the doubt here. Okay. <laughs> All right, but <laughs> yeah, try not to go overboard. So the first half of this mo- <laughs> the first half of this movie is very much. I just got vondling. <laughs> so the first half of Hacksaw Ridge, you think, resembles the 90s epics that we were discussing with that kind of, like, heartfelt, very genuine, almost cheesy sort of, like, hopefulness to them? Yeah, it's very much Titanic and Gump. It, that's the feeling I got from those. And then the back half is Saving Private Ryan all the way, but more ridiculously over the top with the violence. Just absolute gore for gore let's sake like yeah i describe i described it as the mel gibson torture gauntlet because that's kind of what mel gibson's movies are uh as in a directorial sense they're torture gauntlets and the last half is very much um pain and suffering he's a more. sadist is gory? like is there a lot of is there a lot of like effects from that or oh extremely like it, he does not shy away from not only just you know people getting shot in combat but also just you know, we see through Doss's point of view, and we're, we're looking at you know bodies that have been decomposing on the battlefield Ugh. for weeks, and 
just you know maggots crawling all over everything and it's it's very very like it earns its r rating i'll say that it doesn't earn anything else attention to detail huh no Ooh, sick burn no i was thinking about this we're gonna compare it to saving private ryan saving private ryan ends with tom hanks giving that big wonderful speech of earn this earn this which hacksaw ridge does not it doesn't earn it, but at the same time, you you are forced to watch, you know, Andrew Lincoln earn it over and over and over again, but to no real payoff, I guess. Wrong, wrong president, Andrew Garfield. God, damn it. we'll be talking about the president. In fairness, they were both assassinated. So if you want to talk about Andrew McKinley or Andrew Kennedy, now's the time. Hang, hang on a minute, because because sometimes when I talk, I don't actually hear myself. Who did I say? Andrew Lincoln. Oh man. Okay. So I I just quit The Walking Dead. So I'm having a little bit of a, a you know. It's okay. I was about here. to say Andrew John Arbuckle. <laughs> um. <laughs> you you get out of here also. Also fired. <laughs> Joe and I are the only people working. Andrew Odie. We're trying now. to have a normal conversation here, and you guys are fucking it Welcome. up. Also fired. It's just me. How am I going to cover all these movies on my One own? One might say this week will be Ash <laughs> so, Wednesday. Absolutely wretched. Uh. Get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> okay, so all all of that being said, um, does the film kind of end with that same kind of like sweeping cheesy happiness where the pacifist hero gets his girl in the end or what? Oh, he's very much the like white Christian angel. They lower him down on a stretcher and he gets the, oh, I'm going to say that bad green screening is also part of the like 90s epicness of this. Because <laughs> uh, this movie's full of it, and he gets like he gets his like hero, he gets his Christ pose going on. Uh, I, I he gets his three Lord of the Rings endings, yeah, yeah, and then the, it and sounds then reminiscent of Cool Hand Luke. How so? Uh, the way that you're talking about this Christ allegory, like it's really being drilled into your skull with the poses and with the privations and with all the shit that he has to go through and how graphic they are in saying uh, Jesus was great, but his life sucked. Oh, and that's true. There's definitely this moment where Andrew Garfield looks directly at the at the screen, and you can compare it to the Mary Magdalene moment from Passion of the Christ, where he's like breaks the fourth wall entirely, and he's supposedly talking to God, but he's also talking to us, and he says, "What do you want from me?" With this ridiculous Virginia accent that Andrew Garfield is working through, and uh, Mel Gibson is a lot of things. Subtle is not one of them. And he, there's no subtlety to this, which also, I think, is part of that, like, 90s idea of it. Because there wasn't a whole lot of subtlety to Gump. There's not a subtlety to Titanic. Uh, or to Braveheart. Or to Braveheart. There's no subtlety in Braveheart. Um, and that's, I guess what I'm getting at is, it's weird to see a movie this saccharine, this su- this blatant. Um, it's not necessarily good or bad. On this case, it's bad. I think I'd like to see it more in a better movie. Uh, and I'm wondering why it feels so weird to me to see a movie like this in theaters in 2016. That's how I felt about War Horse. Oh, really? Yeah, War Horse seemed kind of like a movie out of place, although War Horse seemed more like it belonged in even the 40s or 50s. Well, like I said, that's part of uh, part of it, because those 90s, those 90s movies were trying to recapture the 40s, 50s, <laughs> Like, war epics. I do feel that there's a little bit of, like, Battle of the Bulge, uh, like, John Wayne Green Berets kind of thing to this. Um, 
the ones that didn't question war, the ones that, I mean, I, no, yeah, the ones that celebrated these heroes rather than the, like, angry, kind of bitter, um, you know what the last film like this was that I think, the thing that I can compare it to? Pearl Harbor. And I think Pearl Harbor may have killed that for a long time. Do you understand? I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Because Pearl Harbor, I mean, it, it was very much about sort of the. It was still in that mode of like the full dramatization. Like when you you would you would buy it on VHS, it came in two tapes because it was so long and so sort of cumbersome. Wait, would you but say they, that they were dedicated? Would you say that Pearl Harbor and its director director Michael Bay? Would you say it kept these movies at bay? Boo! You're, you're fired again. Boo! You joke, go, go but the sit answer in the shame yes. corner. You're done. You're in time. The answer out. is yes. And also, that joke would have been better if you didn't tell us the director's name in the middle of it. If you had just said at bay, because we all we we can fix that in post. Fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that did kill that for a while. I think that once that showed up, we were just kind of sick of this, and we decided to slink back into. Uh, I don't. I don't know how to compare that. That was also at the same time that we started getting the rise of superhero movies, and so our tent poles became IP laden uh, sequels that and high fantasy. So we got way more interested in that than making um, big budget realism, I guess. Well, and, and two, Pearl Harbor came like right before nine eleven, which you know sort of famously killed off any notions of romanticism in our war movies. Um, and so I, and I think that is exactly what I was about to say, because if you, if you'll look at the, the last few war movies, especially like say the last five, 10 years that have been very popular, a lot of them have been kind of, uh, examining. And for the most part, I think being quite critical of American military interventions overseas. Um, and it's very, very weird to get something like the hurt locker. Um, and then a few years later, uh, American Sniper gets a lot of attention, uh, which the Hurt Locker subverted everything that they placed straight in American Sniper. Yes. Um, but they're both pretty, like, much darker in tone than it sounds like Hacksaw Ridge is. And it's also, you know, a different war. And I think that's a big component of it. I would say that, ironically, one of the effects of 9-11 is that it sort of rechanneled uh, how we want to see violence depicted on our culture. So rather than this sort of grim and gritty, uh, visceral, real-world war like you see in Saving Private Ryan, now we think of violence as either happening in superhero movies or Game of Thrones. We need, we sort of crave that removal from a realm of reality. I, I can believe that, and I think Warhorse maybe gets a pass because... Uh, movies about World War One have kind of always been romanticized to a point, and then when you look at World War Two, the the tenor of the conversation is more like, no, this is the most important thing we have ever done. So we, you're not really allowed to romanticize it. Instead, you just sort of depict it as is because you know the the reasons for the war were very very different. Yeah, I think World War Two. The way we tend to think of it in American culture is like we refer to the people who fought World War II in America as the greatest generation. You know, like this was something they were doing. It was an undeniably righteous war. And when people want to look at wars with foreign countries as something that is undeniably righteous, the number one go to most Americans, I think we'll use as an example, is World War II and fighting the Nazis. Um, so, you know, by comparison, uh, when we started making movies that were about war and American military intervention, um, and police actions, 
that weren't so righteous or maybe were more ambiguous or were, you know, really there was no chance that America was going to lose, quote unquote. Um, you know, like when we rolled through Baghdad, <laughs> uh, there, there was no way Iraq was going to be able to mount like a, a true threat to the American military and that, you know, examining that in our, in our culture and in our art, you know, becomes a much darker and more ambiguous thing because we as a culture haven't agreed on how we feel about that yet. Whereas World War II is much easier to portray in our films, even today with Hacksaw Ridge, as something that has kind of a righteous component to it or something that can be a little bit more, you know, cheesy with personal heroics. You know, there's more space to it um, just because we regard that as being so much more righteous and less morally ambiguous. Let me ask this. This is my question for you guys. I liked War Horse, especially with all of its Spielbergian schmaltz. I'm always willing to give Steven Spielberg a pass on being schmaltzy uh, because he's really good at it. Uh, I should also mention that Hacksaw Ridge completely has the Spielberg daddy issues thing going on. <laughs> um, but... For me, the interesting part of the movie is the first half uh, with the personal heroics, the struggle against the U.S. military. Once we actually get to Hacksaw Ridge uh, and the blood starts flying, I tuned out. So the interesting part to me is the the silly love story, the big, like, grand gestureness of it. Um, I started to think a little bit about uh, the cheesiness of Ewan McGregor in Big Fish yelling... Sandra Templeton, I will marry you! <laughs> and I think there's a place for that. I don't know if we're ready for... I, my que I guess the question I'm asking is, is that something you'd like to see more of? Would you like to see that kind of make a comeback? Because we don't make re movies like Gump or like Titanic or Braveheart anymore. I think the last time we tried was when James Cameron made Avatar, and uh, that was more of a tech demo than anything. The, the tech really got away yeah, from the story on that one. Would you like to see kind of a return to that? I absolutely would. I, I, I feel strongly that we should, because one of the bits of collateral damage that we've had from uh, movies, like comic book movies, especially the Avengers, especially the Avengers, is this sort of ironic detachment from absolutely everything. Sincerity has become sort of box office poison. And I think we need to get away from that, because most of the greatest movies that exist in our cultural consciousness were unabashedly schmaltzy, especially Frank Capra's work. I mean, you look at that stuff, and that stuff is schmaltzy as fuck. But it works because they just dive straight into that attitude and own it. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think there is something of a dearth of inspiration uh, in a lot of our art right now. I think, you know... 20, 30 years in the future when we're looking back on this era of art, I think we're going to see that, you know, the attitude was very much depressed, you know, probably um, as a response to all of the very challenging uh, sociopolitical things going on in the economic recession. Um, I, I think... Very diplomatic word choice, Ash. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, I, I think we could use more, more inspiration and more in, let's see, not just inspiring, but like the thing that really sweeps your heart away when you're watching it and gets you so caught up and you believe while you're taking in this, this piece of art, you believe that I can do something too. You know, the world isn't so big that one person can't make a difference and maybe, you know, I can make this a part of me. Um, the, the, the capacity for art to inspire people to make a difference 
and to feel really engaged and a part of like the art that they are watching and the world and culture that produced it is unparalleled. You know, I think film is an amazing medium for the pathos that it can convey to a person. And I would love to see more of that in popular films. And it's part of why I love such a schlocky, schlocky sci-fi garbage like Jupiter Ascending, because it has a lot of that positivity. That's true. It does seem like a lot of our schlock has gone into sci-fi. Tomorrowland is a prominent example of this. Well, not prominent because it bombed, but you get the idea. No, <laughs> Tomorrowland is is probably a good example of that. You're right. Um, yeah, melodrama, inspirational melodrama. I I like it. I it hits me where it's supposed to hit. Uh, and Hacksaw Ridge does that in Spades. If it had been uh, a different director, I think I would have appreciated it more. If it wasn't so damn. Uh, Tone deaf or two toned, really. That's what it is. Yeah, it's hard to say a film is tone deaf when it, there's a very defined breaking point between the first and the second halves. And then as soon as the first person gets shot in the face, I mean, it's like right there. And then boom, you're off and running. It's, yeah. So does it yeah, kind of take on right a. Turn. Does it take on a, a darker tone in the second half then? Like much kind of just sets that, uh, that schmaltzy 90s sweetness aside? I, I think it does, because once the battle scenes start, they never stop, and everybody is looking at Andrew Garfield's character, and they never say it explicitly, but you can tell everyone is thinking, this is what it is, this is what you we've we've been telling you about the entire movie, it's here now, and you have to deal with it. He does still get, like, his hero moments, and, you know, people do, like, we see clips of the camps where everyone's like, Dawes did this? Desmond Dawes? Dawes the hero? Uh, or I'm sorry, Dawes the Coward did this. So they do start building him up larger than life again, probably about three quarters of the way through the movie. And then, like I said, it does end back on that big sweeping uh, strings note. And then it so, kind of shifts into documentary mode for a bit. So maybe, maybe the sweeping strings, as you say, in the first half was supposed to kind of represent his idealism and how it came from naivete, and then later, once he's been exposed to the horrors of war, it's idealism that comes from understanding the situation he's in and choosing to stand by his moral center, regardless. <laughs> it sounds... You know what, Ash? You can review this next time. <laughs> I haven't seen it! <laughs> and, but you know what? I th I think... I think that would have come through much cl more clearly in the movie had it been made by... Anybody other than Mel Gibson. Oh, in a metafictional sense, it sounds like Mel Gibson is commenting on the years since his DUI, that he's basically saying that his war years were his period of shit, and now he is back, and uh, he's trying to make us all think he's not racist anymore. You know, Salah, I had that thought. I had that thought, and as they were lowering Andrew Garfield down in the uh, on the stretcher, I thought, if if... Mel Gibson wants to prove that to me. He should take this prowess, this technical ability, and give me a movie about the Warsaw Ghetto. I agree. Give me a movie with a Jewish hero, you know. Yeah, if he wanted to prove that, he he should maybe not have chosen a film about the Pacific Theater, basically, is what we're saying. Oh, I want to point out, we also do get a wildly racist scene where a Japanese commander who we've never seen before is shown committing harikiri, uh... Because they lost the battle. Oh, yeah. And it's oh, yeah. very strange and out of place. 
I mean, they they do like the the like the the loving close up shots and they the slow motion and the soft lighting. They give it the full treatment. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so to, to wrap to wrap this up, I will say that we should have a lot more sincerity in films. I'd like to see kind of a return to that, um, but it has its place. I can see people getting sick of it. If nothing else, we need it so that TNT can have fodder to play in the afternoons for the next thirty five years. Yeah, Shawshank ain't going to live forever. Ooh, I need to make a recommendation at this point. Uh, The Majestic, the 2008 Forgotten Jim Carrey movie, Hollywood and the U.S. were wrong about that. Go watch it. It's actually really good, and it does that schmaltzy shit a lot better than it has a right to. Go watch The Majestic. And I, I, I would just like to throw out momentarily, it's very strange to see that the 2016 film released by Mel Gibson, the director, is Hacksaw Ridge, when the 2016 film released with Mel Gibson, the lead actor, was Bloodfather, which if you haven't watched <laughs> the trailer for it, do so. It's crazy. That is an incredibly, like, violent... It premiered at uh, Cannes Film Festival, I believe, um, and it is, like, an extremely violent film... Um, he plays like an ex-convict and there's just, it's called Bloodfather appropriately because there is so much blood. <laughs> and bef- In our next segment. And before we dive we'll into be Daddy about- Kink, let's move on. In our next segment, we'll be talking about fictional presidents. So don't go away or do after that. I don't even know. It's up to you. No judgment. <laughs> Hey everybody out there in podcast land, this is Martin R. Schneider from Front Row Central. You were just listening to my voice on the Front Row Central podcast. Well, coming soon, you can listen to my voice on a totally different podcast. Political Theater is the podcast that breaks down the connections between real-world politics and pop culture. Perfect for those horrible dystopian days when you can't even tell yourself what's real anymore. Every month, my co-host Marta Russick and I will tackle a different political topic and analyze it using movies you love and movies you hate. Plus, interviews with newsmakers, researchers, filmmakers, and anyone else who's relevant to the topic. And I know what you're thinking. We promise. No Game of Thrones, no Harry Potter analogies. So watch for Political Theater in 2017 at Front Row Central and at politicaltheaterpodcast.com. Remember, it's your patriotic duty. And we're back. Hi, everybody. We are now in uh, segment two of our inaugural podcast episode. And uh, tonight, because we've just gone through a very contentious election season, we, th- we thought we'd talk about uh, fictional presidents tonight, uh, specifically ones that... A much you- more pleasant topic. <laughs> yes. Presidents that nobody has ever voted on or for or against. Um, we have found a list from the Wall Street Journal which we'll put in the show notes. It's the 44 fake presidents from worst to best. Uh, and we, we can talk about presidents that are not on this list or maybe exclusively presidents on this list. But, uh, you know, hey, uh, just real quick for the room, uh, who are your favorite uh, fictional presidents? I'm going to go with President James Sawyer, who is Jamie Foxx in White House Down. Okay. Uh, that's, that, that's yeah. That's one of my favorites I love- recently. I love President Sawyer. I love that movie a lot. Um, 
Simply because I do think that President Sawyer would be a good president. He's very much a socialist. He's on record uh, in that movie as saying that he believes that poverty is the root of the majority of the issues in the nation. Uh, And he's like the cooler version of Obama, if that's a thing. He's like, like the idea of Obama, but just doesn't take any of the shit that Obama like goes through. Uh, he's basically, he's basically the anger translator sketch from, uh, Key and Peele translated onto screen. And I, I loved it. There's just so much charisma. I can absolutely see how this guy would get elected because he's charming. He's got that ridiculous bit with the Jordans and also seems like he's like a decent dude. So I would vote President James Sawyer if we're picking our favorites. I do love Jamie Foxx in White House Down. He is so good in that role, and the character he plays is definitely very charismatic and very brave, and it's it's really what we all want to think we're voting for when we vote for president. You know, no matter how many movies I see Jamie Foxx in, to me, he'll always be Wanda from A Living Color. I just can't see him as anything else. <laughs> oh, man. It, um... You know, if, if I were picking any of the presidents on this list, or just any president's period, I mean, my my gut is to go with uh, President uh, Jed Bartlett from The West Wing, which I realize is a TV show and not movies, but hey, entertainment is fluid. Uh, but the, the only reason I'm going to say President Bartlett is for the simple fact that, at least in the first season or two, I haven't really gotten much further than that in the show, he is a huge National Parks nerd to the point where like he just bores you know his interns and aides for hours on end with useless facts and trivia about the National Parks. And I feel like that's that's the kind of thing I want in a president because, you know, you look at Donald Trump and you look at Hillary and I don't – and maybe I'm wrong on this. I don't see a person who – nerds out about the minutia of america you know like well, I, also say I, that, I can believe that go ahead oh i would also say that national parks are a surprisingly relevant issue nowadays as well because the gop is planning to sell them off there's a huge movement within congress to sell off all of our national parks to private interests to mine them to squeeze out any natural resources that we can and they're originally designed and created as a piece of land that belongs to everybody, that we're all the collective owners of. And if you think about it, in real life, if somebody takes your stuff, steals it, and then sells it, the person's kind of a dick. But that's what there's a movement to do right now, is take these national parks and sell them. And I just turned into a talk show radio host. But you get the idea. Yeah, but uh, the, and, and I, I agree. The The point that, I, that I'm coming from, though, is just, if you look at Hillary and Trump, you don't really get the sense that... They care they're passionate about anything like internally you know and i'm or sure just, they i'm sure they are but you can tell that this man just sits at home at night and just reads books on john muir you know like that's what he does for fun or just anything at all really uh there's that clip going that came out of justin trudeau prime minister of canada last year where he explains quantum physics or quantum computing uh on a whim kind of a conversation which was probably faked probably staged but at least you got the sense that this is the kind of guy who reads a Wikipedia article every once in a while because uh, he's genuinely curious about stuff. So I would like to know, like, if if Hillary Clinton has, like, a backlog of... The, if Hillary Clinton listens to, like, 99% Invisible or something, that would make me uh, appreciate it a lot more. I want to know what our uh, politicians are nerds about. 
Right. Like just just to know that they have an internal life and they're not just, you know, 100 percent on the campaign trail at all, you know, 24 seven. That's even even marginally important to me just to know that they do something with their downtime. All right. Who's next? I would have to say my ultimate favorite featured on this list is slotted at number one, President James Marshall in Air Force One. Uh, I haven't seen Air Force One in quite a while, now that I think on it, Um, but I remember thinking uh, Harrison Ford played the archetypal, like, model for president as, like, a man of integrity, kind of what I said about James Sawyer, Um, but uh, James Sawyer was much more, I don't know, they... I think they talked about his political views a little bit more in that film than they do in Air Force One, which is kind of more action-y with regards to Marshall's role. Um, But he's very much like the the model of like a man of great integrity uh, who is in an extraordinary situation um, as a result of a geopolitical flashpoint. So uh, he's, he's probably my favorite and they put him at number one. All right, Salah, yours. All righty. I would have to say Camacho from Idiocracy. Now, I'm not saying that Idiocracy is a great movie. It is virulently racist and classist and uh, very elitist. But uh, I like Camacho because he shows that he was the first real proof that I saw that Terry Crews has real comedy chops and that he's able to absorb himself in the world of whatever it is he creates. This is something he does to great effect in uh, Bridesmaids, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. When he takes a role, he has this ability to simultaneously make it his and make it fit within the larger tapestry of the film. So while I wouldn't say Idiocracy was a classic, although as a college professor I see a lot of my life in it, uh, I would say that it is something that... Uh, shows a lot about what the future would be for comedy. I do want to give a uh, honorable mention to President Henry Burton. No, I'm sorry, President Jack Stanton of Primary Colors because yes. he's literally just Bill Clinton. It's just, <laughs> it's just John Travolta playing Bill Clinton uh, in everything but name. So that's one that uh, kind of slides by on a technicality. And I do like uh, Jack Stanton. He's a he's a he's a slippery son of a bitch who seems like he does have a genuine interest in people, particularly young women, but people in general. You know, kind of like the real Bill Clinton. <laughs> I feel so like it's we, the, oh we can't really ahead. say that that's a fictional president. No, no, <laughs> I, we... I I, I want to let him in on a technicality, but okay. I don't think I can. So okay. I think it's important to note uh, that I'm looking through this list and um, there's a lot of things on here that have been on my to watch list for a million years that I have not uh, not seen. Um, and some of them I'd be very, very, very interested to move to the uh, the top of my list, like James Earl Jones and The Man. Um, and of course, I read Failsafe, but I haven't seen Failsafe, actually. There's one that I want to point out for just why it was included, because I'm honestly at a loss. Um, you look at the top of the list, which is sort of, I guess, supposed to be the worst presidents. Uh, and you've got um, Cliff Robertson in Escape from L.A. You've got Francis Underwood from House of Cards. You've got uh, President Camacho. And then you've got 
number 35 on the list, President Will Cooper, uh, played by Kevin James in the 2015 film Pixels. And I wonder what makes him so much better than uh, Selena Meyer or President Camacho or um, anybody else. Well, for one thing, like President Will Cooper is one of the only presidents who got out and fought the war. That is definitely a plus. I will give you that. No, he, when we had a war against 1980s video games, President Will Cooper got out there and fight just like Bill Pullman in Independence Day. And also, how did none of us mention Bill Pullman in Independence Day? Because really Independence probably... Day 2 really sort of tarnishes his reputation from Independence Day 1. Um, and I think the less said about it, the better. Okay, then that's I realize fair. I realize that's just my uh, personal inclination there. But I, I will say... I would say... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was gonna, like, gonna let Joe go ahead. Um, I will say that, uh, to be honest, I fucking hate listicles, and stuff like that is why, because, uh, they're always constructed where people will take the very best, the very worst, and there's always that sort of middle-of-the-list doldrums, where they just put all the other also-rans in no particular order. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree, because you look at the middle of this list, and it's all presidents from things you forgot about, like... Oh, Michael Keaton in the movie First Daughter, or Mark Cuban in Sharknado 3, or... Billy Bob Thornton in Love Actually. Playing the esteemed role of The President. He doesn't even get a name. (laughs) (laughs) Although, Although that's an interesting bit right there, like... I love the movie Love Actually, even in its, like, ridiculousness and its, like, cheese and schmaltz. But the part of the movie that always rubs me the wrong way is when The President, Billy Bob Thornton, and, uh... The Prime Minister. The Prime Minister also doesn't get a name in that movie, Hugh Grant. Uh, they get into it, and Hugh Grant calls him out on his shit in the middle of a press conference in, on national television, thereby endangering one of the oldest political arrangements and agreements in world history. And he does this because Billy Bob Thornton flirted with a girl that he liked. However... However, I've heard a lot of Brits tell me that that's a very important scene to them because it was somewhat representative of the Bush-Blair relationship, and it was a lot of them uh, seeing what they wanted, wished that Tony Blair would say to George W. Bush. So I think that the president doesn't get shit. We're not going to give the president credit for anything. If anything, that seems a testament to the prime minister. And if we're going to pick fictional prime ministers, yeah, okay, I'll pick Hugh Grant on that one. And also, is it true that Billy Bob Thornton has, like, a weird aversion to antiques? Because I've heard stories about Love Actually and how they would they would show him antiques right before filming started just to freak him out and put him into, like, that character's headspace. Is there any truth to that? What? I've heard stories what? about this. The story goes that, like, when they were doing the scenes of, of Hugh Grant and Billy Bob Thornton as the two heads of state... That they would, to get Billy Bob Thornton into character and to give him that sort of horrified and disgusted reaction, they would show him, like, either pictures or actual, like, antique furniture, because that's just something that he absolutely hates. And it sounds crazy, but I've, I've heard this from multiple sources, so uh, there's there's gotta, there's, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, but that's what I've heard. Billy Bob Thornton's a weird enough dude that I'd buy it. Yeah. Billy Bob Thornton, by the way, also great in Primary Colors. Oh, is he in that? I forgot. Yeah, I... he plays like this this sleazebag Texas. Uh, I don't actually know what his job is on the campaign, but they seem damn sure that they need him. 
and he like walks around in this like American flag track jacket and just exudes sleaze, uh, which is something <laughs> that Billy Bob Thornton does very well. Um, oh yeah, that's one of his calling cards. I will say we talked like about presidents that are technically fictional, uh, but I would say that you should definitely put like President Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter on this list because that's not that's roughly that that's not Lincoln. Yeah, that's about as fictional as you can go with a character based on a real person, I believe. Um, I don't. It's, oh. it's been a long time since I've seen Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. But I remember it. I remember that film be, tapping very much into his, like his sort of righteous anger about slavery and other things to get him into the headspace of a vampire hunter. It, it definitely draws kind of from there? that. It, do, it definitely draws from that. There's that great bit where uh, Dominic Cooper goes to hand him a gun, and Lincoln goes, "You know, I was never very good with firearms." And he looks at the axe and he says, "But I was a rail splitter." <laughs> so I think that no that movie I mean it says it from the first line that it's about Abraham Lincoln the legend not Abraham Lincoln the actual man yeah Lincoln has kind of become mythologized in our culture enough that it's very clearly not speaking to uh, any biographical truths there there is that one great scene though where he he's they're they're training and he's chopping wood and and Dominic Cooper's telling him to use the anger about you know his mother and his and you know slavery and and all the stuff to to fuel his uh, to fuel his rage and once he taps into it he explodes a tree with his axe in the most like ostentatious fashion and it's kind of the I, best thing I ever. love that scene I do <laughs> uh, we could actually do this with our favorite Lincolns we could really just have a round robin of our favorite portrayals of Lincoln uh, I would go My... classic on that young Mr. Uh, young Mr. Lincoln uh, John Ford's follow-up to Stagecoach would be my pick. Um, my favorite Lincoln comedy option would have to be Gilbert Gottfried from A Million Ways to Die in the West. Really? Because... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's probably one of the only good jokes in the entire movie, and it's that they go to see uh, President Lincoln speak, and the guy introduces him, and it's Gilbert Gottfried dressed up as Abraham Lincoln, and he's screaming at the audience about how poor he used to be until he became the president. And once he became the president, he became so fucking rich, he could have all the licorice he wanted. <laughs> and then the scene ends. And he's gone forever. <laughs> This right here is the most right. respect I've ever had for bet. Seth MacFarlane. This moment right now. I, I will go. I'll I'll hunt that down on YouTube and watch that clip and not bother with the rest of the movie. Oh, I've got it. Excellent. I'll give it to you. All right. Uh, do we do we want to continue favorite Lincolns or should I just recap my favorite Lincoln, uh, our options and my favorite can Lincoln isn't it. from a movie. It's from this yeah. episode of Mister Show with Bob and David, where he's played by Tom Kenny. And they're in a room full of the Founding Fathers signing the Declaration of Independence. So, of course, he's anachronistic as fuck. And essentially, he just uh, speaks in this really blunt Chicago accent. And they're talking about all these different ways they can design a flag so that the flag is physically impossible for anyone to shit on. Uh, it makes sense in context. And so they're talking about a, a flag that would be on a permanent flagpole that could never, or that would be stuck in the air forever. And he says, lunacy, how do we get it down? 
And for some reason, the idea of Lincoln being so out of place and also speaking with a completely unreal- unrealistic accent just makes that the best moment of that entire episode. Like, like he's almost in like an Abbott and Costello routine. Exactly. <laughs> if we're going to talk about uh, portrayals of real presidents, I'd like to take a more serious note and talk about probably my favorite Boo. that I can think of. I know, I know, I'm spoiling everything. Um, which is in uh, Selma, the portrayal of LBJ. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, LBJ uh, is often kind of lionized for w- what is considered his public support for um, the Civil Rights Movement and ultimately the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, and Selma... Uh, received some criticism as a film for making that portrayal of LBJ um, not as generous as the uh, the lionization that we typically hear about. Um, I think it's very, very fair to him, um, but it presents him as someone who uh, is kind of telling MLK, like, look, this isn't really a good time for this. Do you think you could hold off on this for a minute? Because I got a lot of other things going on right now. Um, and there's a line that stuck out to me where he says, you know, you're an activist, you have one issue, I'm a president, I have 80, um, something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but, you know, as the president, he's attempting to kind of balance all of these different interests all the time. Um, and, you know, MLK, like, stares him down. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful scene in an extremely powerful film. And... That portrayal, I think, is really important because it also makes LBJ's position seem understandable. Um, Like, you get why he's kind of hedging around this and asking MLK if he could uh, wait a bit um, until a time that was more politically convenient because he does have a lot of other things that he's trying to wrangle. And when you're dealing with a bunch of racist politicians, it's not necessarily easy to convince them that... Uh, the Civil Rights Act is something that you need. You know, it kind of portrays him as someone who's very tired, um, which I think we can agree, historically speaking, was probably the case, um, considering he opted not to run for re-election. You know, he was only in office six years total, I believe it was, and then he died a few years uh, after leaving office. I want to give credit to the Lyndon B. Johnson played by Liev Schreiber in Lee Daniels' The Butler. Which is not a great movie, although now that I think about it, it would probably fit into the uh, melodrama discussion that we had in the first segment. But Lee Daniels the butler has some very odd choices for portrayals of presidents. And my favorite is Liev Schreiber playing LBJ, because he just plays him as an unrepentant asshole. <laughs> <laughs> just, like, taking dumps with the door open, letting his dogs run over, doing the LBJ lean-in where he just makes people uncomfortable... And you can tell that Schreiber is having so much fun being such a jackass all the time. And it's, like, some of the better moments of that movie. That movie also has, like, a lot of weird choices for presidents. Uh, James Marsden plays JFK. Uh, He's got a couple of good moments. Um, Robin Williams, I think, is in that movie uh, as as Eisenhower. Yeah, Eisenhower. Yeah, the only one that really doesn't work is Cusack as Nixon. 
I remember uh. that when I... What a bizarre casting decision. <laughs> it's such a weird casting decision, and it feels like Cusack is fully aware of it. Because he just kind of walks in with a fake nose and acts like John Cusack and then walks out. I can see that kind of torpedoing <laughs> the movie's It's a real movie killer. You know? <laughs> like, John Cusack's just saying there, I am not a crook. I am not a crook. Like I'm, I'm. Oh, and uh, and Alan Rickman is Ronald Reagan in that movie too. What? That's the real head fucker right that's there. The is Alan real, Rickman. That's the weirdest one. He's unrecognizable under all of the the makeup that they put on him. Uh, it's just a strange. Like that definitely goes in the weird portrayals of Presidents Hall of Fame. That movie. I want to see yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, yeah, I, do his Reagan impression like that now. Something like tear down this wall, Gorbachev. I don't know. I can, you know, you know, I kind of want to see, you know, like Lee Daniels, the Butler, he features all these different actors as all these different presidents. I want to see a movie use the same actor for all these different presidents, just to see if Benedict Cumberbatch can pull that off. And I don't think he can, but I would love to see him try. Oh, I would pay so much money for that. Um, Shout out to First Ladies. I forgot satisfying. Uh, Jane Fonda plays Nancy Reagan in that movie, which must have pissed so <laughs> many people off. <laughs> oh, man, I can't even imagine. Um, All right. So, so re- real quick, before before we get off the, the butler train, uh, I do want to I just want to make, make note that um, sometimes I, I host uh, team trivia at a bar here in uh, Greensboro and. A few months ago, I used I used a bunch of fictional presidents as a category. It's like here's a bunch of actors as presidents. What presidents are they portraying? And I used three from the Butler in a row, and everybody was everybody in the crowd was like, "That guy played a president," and then the next one, "That guy played a president," and then you hit Rickman, and everybody loses their minds. And then you tell them, "Hey, those last three, all the same movie," and it just the place just melted down. Like nobody could believe that. <laughs> I guess that tells you how many people saw the butler then. Yeah. The, the butler isn't great, and like once Selma hit, it destroyed any need to see the the butler. Precisely. But I, I I I like the butler. I wish it was better, simply because of how fucking weird it is. <laughs> I, I appreciate the strangeness of the butler. All right, so I'm gonna recap before we move on to the next segment. So our four choices, which I guess maybe we'll have a poll and listeners can vote on this. So our choices for best fictional president, uh, my choice was President James Sawyer, played by Jamie Foxx in White House Down. Uh, Joe, your choice was President Jed Bartlett, who was played by Martin Sheen in The West Wing, and I think that's the one that's going to win. Uh, Ash, Sorry. you you, know, you you picked a winner. You bet you backed the horse, so you think he's going to win. Uh, Ash, your choice was what again? James Marshall in Air Force One, Harrison Ford. Of course. And Salaz, yours was President Camacho, Terry Crews in Idiot. Yeah, I backed the horse with only two legs. Yeah, we'll have a poll. You can vote on it. And we'll see you in the next segment. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas. <laughs> 
Greetings, holiday shoppers. I'm Joseph Wade, and I host a podcast called Christmas Creeps. My band of merry mischief makers and I dissect holiday movies and specials all year round in search of the true meaning of Christmas. So whether you can't resist the urge to watch Home Alone in June, or you worship at the altar of mutant killer snowmen, Christmas Creeps is the podcast for the Grinch in all of us. Check us out at christmascreeps.com or wherever you download podcasts. Okay, for our last segment, we're going to do what so many other podcasts do and talk to you about things that we love, everything that we want to promote or pimp or tell you about and think that you should be checking out, both new and old, anything that hits us on the pop culture radar that we're appreciating. This could be a book, this could be somebody we like on Twitter. This can be a movie, maybe a TV series that we're just now getting around to. Anything like that. So anything that we love that we think you should look at and can appeal to your appetite, we're going to promote it right now. So I will start, and I'm going to recommend two comic books that are in your local comic book shop right now. They've only got a few issues each, so you can jump on them pretty quickly and they're also self-contained in each issue so you can pick up one without having to read all the others before it so and both of these are based on 1960s Hanna-Barbera cartoons slash original Archie oh yes these are so great I've been reading them too all right we can talk about this okay so the two comic books I want to promote are the Flintstones and the Pussycats and oh, I thought you were going to say the Wacky Raceland one. No, the Wacky Raceland one is horrible by all accounts. No. Uh, no, the Flintstones, I'll start with. The Flintstones is, I think, what people aspire to do when they say that they're going to take something and reboot it a little bit more mature, a little bit darker. Absolutely. It really takes an interesting look at the, the universe uh, of Bedrock. In this version... Um, Bedrock is recently founded, only in the past 20 years. Before that, it was all trees, all forest. And Barney and Fred, without realizing it, were part of an army that went to settle this new land that would be built on stone instead of built in trees. And in doing so, they eradicated the tree people that lived there beforehand. So... Barney and Fred... Oh my god, is this a dark, gritty reboot of Flintstones about colonialism? It is! It is 100% that! And the origins of civilization. And Barney and Fred go to veterans meetings. That's what the Water Buffalo Lodge is, with the hats. They go to veterans meetings because they have PTSD and guilt from what they've done. They actually... But... They actually have a character called the Suicide Hotline, and the operator is saying, Your suicide is very important to us. Please wait. Yeah, there's a lot of dark humor in this. Uh, but it still retains... It is so nihilistic. It still retains so many of the ridiculous puns that exist uh, in the Flintstones universe, which somehow doesn't uh, doesn't change anything. There is one... The first time you see Bedrock, there's so many silly puns, including a bar that I hope they reveal later is a gay bar, because it's called Homo Erectus. And... <laughs> wow. Oh <my> goodness. <laughs> but it's, it's done beautifully and the art is enthralling uh and it's very interesting read and each story is by itself you know there's a lot about just kind of the socio-political background of of bedrock mr slate is an unabashed racist 
And there's also a lot of sweet character moments. We really get to build on Fred and Wilma's relationship. Uh, Wilma it kind of takes the role of this backwoods hick girl who like moved to the city. In her case, it's you know was a hunter gatherer and now is civilized in the city with this man that she fell in love with. And Fred is learning new things about her. Uh, Pebbles is like a uh, politically active teenager in this universe, and but it's funny, it's fascinating. There's great character work on this, and uh, I can't recommend it enough. My brain is not ca- cannot handle how good this book of the Flintstones is. The the Flintstones just... is probably the yeah. In particular, I would recommend The Marriage Issue, which sort of takes uh, monogamy and uh, opposite-sex monogamy and looks through it in the same lens as same-sex marriage looks now, where they say that back when civilization started, monogamy itself sort of went against uh, what people felt was natural and sort of analyzes that same-sex marriage and opposite-sex marriage are not that different as concepts and sort of uh, looks at that and the origins of religion through the same lens and shows how that sort of dogmatism just gets in the way, ultimately. Yeah, it does this. This is the Flintstones. And I really, I, I know that we've talked about how serious this is. I do want to point out this book is very, very funny as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a darker brand of humor, but it is incredibly funny. Um, now, for a lighter bit, I'm going to switch over to Josie and the Pussycats, which is written by Marguerite Bennett. Um, and this is part of Archie Comics' like new reboot uh, of some of their classic lines, and it's my favorite by far. Uh, it's the wittiest book I've read in a long time. Uh, Josie and uh, her friends Melody and Val are treated as believable college-age women, uh, mainly because they're written by a 20-something-year-old woman, uh, who'd a thunk, and... Their wit, their repartee <laughs> is off the charts. The art is fun. Um, Melody, in particular, is kind of character find of the year because her original uh, role was kind of the ditzy, high-pitched blonde, uh, the silly one of the group. And she still has that, but now it's more like a like a childlike innocence, but she still like uses that to flirt. They have... Uh, realistic relationships with guys and they bond not just because of their love of music but because they all happen to love animals which is where the pussycats moniker comes from and it's just they're such fun happy very self-aware fourth wall breaking books and one of my favorite moments uh in the second issue they're in a drag race with some people that want to basically hold them to a contract and force them to play the same bar forever. And through like 1960s cartoon style, they settle this with a motorcycle race and Val steps up with her bass and plays it on the back of this motorcycle, plays his bass very loud. And the sound effect, the onomatopoeia they use is comic book science coming out of this bass. And Josie yells, that doesn't even make sense. And Val responds with, Come at us, Neil deGrasse Tyson! And the whole book is like that. <laughs> so, just pure fun, uh, and probably a welcome break after the emotional head rush that happens when you read The Flintstones. So those are my two recommendations. 
Uh, go to your comic shop, buy The Flintstones, and Josie and the Pussycats. I will say The Flintstones is a very fun book, even though it doesn't let you off easy. Yeah, no. It's fun, and you get emotionally wrecked at points. Alright, uh, Ash, I believe you're next. But I will say, Marty... Oh, okay, say your last one. Uh, fun and... Oh, I was just going to say, Marty, I do forgive you for not naming Wacky Raceland. Ash, what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say, um, fun but will also emotionally wreck you is the perfect segue to my pick um, for the thing I'm into uh, this episode, which is The Wire. Uh, Yes, I know, I know the show started in, what, like 2002 um, and ran until 2008, so I'm definitely behind the curve, uh, but I have finally got around to watching The Wire and... um, the show has its weaknesses uh, every now and then, but um, it is an extremely solid, um, tragically realistic uh, portrayal of social issues and most in particular social institutions in the United States. Um, it takes place in Baltimore, where um, the creator, David Simon, uh, worked as a journalist for a number of years. Um, and it really examines and looks at these different social issues from several different angles. Um, All of the characters, even the ones that do very, very bad or reprehensible things, are humanized. Um, You know, there aren't really villains. You know, there's no good guy, bad guy dichotomy so much as there is just people who are living their lives, and sometimes the way they live their lives are limited by the options afforded to them uh, by our society. And it does an excellent, excellent, excellent job examining these, and it can be very emotionally trying. Uh, the show is willing to kill off principal characters, and there is a huge cast. Um, when I first started watching it, I was told by a friend, don't don't feel ashamed if you have to Wikipedia some of the characters to keep track of what's going on. Um, because it's very involved, um, but it's... It's such a powerful examination of all of these varying social issues, um, and it can be very sad and can be very emotionally trying at times, but the thing that I didn't hear before watching the show about it uh, is that it's also extremely funny. Um, There are many bits that are hilarious. Hawk and Carver are the highlight of the first two seasons. Um, And Jimmy McNulty uh, as the closest thing the show has to a principal character for most of its run um, as this drunken Irish detective who, in the words of his partner, is always giving a shit when it's not his turn to give a shit, um, is an absolute train wreck of a human. <laughs> um, it's, but... it's such a cliche. It's such a cliche and it's just played so well. Yeah, and yes. it works. It works so well. Um, it, it is, it is a cliche, but it really does work because, um, you know, all of these people, all of these characters, very, very few of them, you know, have, have true malice, uh, in their hearts. Um, you know, generally speaking, they're just people who are living their lives, going day to day, trying to do some good in the world, trying to do right by the people in their lives, the vast majority of them, uh, you know, by whatever means is available to them. So I highly, highly, highly recommend The Wire. I've been watching it on HBO Go. So if you have Habogo, uh, please uh, take the time to watch I The think Wire. It is incredible. I think it's also on Amazon Prime if you don't have HBO Go, or at least it was for a long time. 
quite possibly. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I have the thing that, that strikes me about the right, the so wire I'm... is that while it doesn't have any distinctively good guys or bad guys, the person I thought was the most evil, the one I hated the absolute most, was uh, a woman in season four who's the mother of one of the kids who gets introduced. And it's strange, in a movie that's filled with drug dealers, murderers, people who rob drug dealers and murderers, the person I thought was most evil was this Police one kid's brutality. mom. Yes. All this evil stuff happens, and yet this one kid's mom just stands out in my mind as the person I just hated the most. But you'll all see that. All right, Slaw, so what's your pick? Uh, lately, my girlfriend, Crystal, love you. Uh, my girlfriend has gotten me addicted to old Russian comedies. My girlfriend's a total Russophile. I don't know if that's the word or if it is a word, but whatever. We'll, we'll make it one. The films of Leonid Gaidai are just amazing. They're these silent comedies from the 60s. Uh, one of them is Operation Y. In the original Russian, it's Operatsi uh, Uy. And another one is The Diamond Arm. And the third one is Kidnapping Caucasian Style. And I have no fucking idea how to say that in Russian. <laughs> But they all basically take, they all basically take these tropes and these trappings and these shibboleths of silent comedy and they sort of update them for the 60s. So it kind of feels like uh, Mr. Bean behind the Iron Curtain. And he has these recurring band of thieves, these three guys. One of them is this guy who looks like a fat Hitler. And one of them is Yuri Nikulin, who is this famous comedian in Russia. And the third is just this sort of ordinary looking guy who's really inept and really sneaky. And they kind of bumble around like those bandits from Home Alone. But it's this excellent, very colorful, very funny revival of silent comedy. And it's great because it sort of crosses linguistic barriers because even though some of the humor may fly over your head, most of it is nonverbal. And it just works so, so well. And another of the common threads is this nerdy student named Shurik, uh, who is played by a guy whose name is Shurik, actually. I don't remember his exact name, but... Anyway, just very, very funny movies in ways that may not be obvious, but are very endearing and very likable. A lot like the Marx Brothers, where you may not fall in love with it, but you'll probably fall in love with the characters. That's beautiful, really. Yeah, like, that that's... extremely intriguing. <laughs> that's the I'm most in interesting <laughs> one. Wow. All right, Joe, what you got to follow that? <laughs> well... Um, let me bring this down for a bit and then, and you know, at, at the risk of enabling addictive personalities, uh, I, I just want to paint a scenario here for you. Um, so after this, this past week, you know, it has been very tough on all of us and I went grocery shopping, uh, the day after the election and I found the thing that has sort of been picking me up the last, you know, uh, five or six days. And I will go ahead and say it is definitely alcohol. <laughs> But it's a very specific brand of alcohol, and it is the Shiner, the Shiner Bach Holiday Cheer. Oh. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the most wonderful time for a beer because Christmas beers are back in the stores, and this has been my soothing balm for the last uh, handful of days. And uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, I. You know, if you know me on the internet at all, you know that I'm kind of Mr. Christmas, and maybe that's obnoxious to you, and maybe it's not, but um, I, the one part of Christmas that I do wait for all year round is when the holiday beers start coming back into stores, because they're always so good, and they're always so delightful, and the Shiner Holiday Cheer in particular is a a dark... Let's see here. What does it say? It's an old world Dunkelweizen brewed with Texas peaches and roasted pecans, and it's just so delightful and 
This week, it is the pick-me-up that I so desperately needed. That is a good beer. That's one of my favorite holiday beers. Do you get, uh, where you're at, do you get Trogue Mad Elf? I think I've seen that, yeah. 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 Uh, it's it's local to where I'm at, and it's a very strong uh, Belgian dark ale. Um, mm. I wanna... the, the Belgian ales are usually my favorites. Uh, you'll, you'll probably love this then. I want to say it's it's got a very high alcohol volume. I want to say it's between like nine, ten, maybe even eleven percent. Uh, oh man, it it's it's delicious. It's uh, a little bit. I'm gonna say spicy. Uh, out of to me, that it's what uh, Chris tastes like. But that is an excellent recommendation on that Shinerbach Holiday Ale. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what are they? Th- Local brews, national brews, like Christmas beers are my jam. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. It's 11%, and they say it is with... Oh, man. Yeah, ripened cherries, raw honey, and cocoa with notes of cinnamon, clove, and allspice. And that clove and mm. allspice really comes uh, through in it. So I'm going to recommend you try Trogue's Mad Elf if you can. If it gets as, Yeah, I've got to hunt that down. If it gets as far south as you. Oh, man. I know I've seen the name out there, so if I can just find the right place, I know, I'm sure they'll have it. All right, so that is uh, everything that we love this week. It ranges from comic books to beer to uh, obscure Russian silent comedies. Uh, by the way, Salal, where are you watching those? Are they available on YouTube? or? I'm afraid not. I just blind bought them all on Amazon, to be honest, but totally okay. worth it. You can get them all uh, on Netflix uh, from their DVD service, though. They should all be available there. We'll include a link or something in the show notes. Uh, thank and you all for those so- of you wondering. Sorry, that's Gaidai, G A I D A I, Leonid Gaidai. All right, so I think that's going to do it for us here at the Front Row Central podcast, uh, which maybe we'll come up with a name for. I kind of like this. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to us for the first time. We hope that you come back. We'll be available on our website, frontrowcentral.com. Probably with a separate section slash podcasts, uh, and probably on iTunes and your uh, preferred podcast catcher. You can follow us all online um, at at Front Row Central or Facebook.com slash Front Row Central. You can follow me at at Schneid Remarks, S-C-H-N-E-I-D Remarks. Folks, you want to t- chime in with yours? I am Stabbins McGee, S-T-A-B-B-I-N-S. M-C-G-E-E, and I apologize in advance for the highly politicized nature of my posts, but I usually post when I'm dead tired at about 3 a.m. On the good side, I'm a teetotaler, so it doesn't get that batshit insane, but a respectable amount. I do not apologize for the political nature of my tweets, and if you don't like them, feel free to not follow me. I also don't apologize for the drunkenness of my tweets simply because when i reach a certain level of drunk i tell stories about andre the giant and i know a lot of stories about andre the giant i've gotten a lot of drunk texts about andre the giant and i apologize for everything all the time and if you want to see more apologies follow me on twitter at jwadefrc because i am the least creative motherfucker on the planet (laughs) (laughs) out of the four of us definitely we will have a downloadable PDF of our Front Row Central Fuck Off form available on our website shortly, so go there if you do have a problem with anything we tweet. We took a really belligerent tone at the end of this episode, guys. Please, I didn't! I apologized! <laughs> Please come back and join us again. <laughs> we love our readers, we love our listeners, and fuck you. Hopefully we'll be playing some music right now. Play us out a available public domain music motherfucking earning that explicit tag 
Good night, everyone. Good night.